0: Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen.
1: Uh, welcome. Good morning to you all. Um, I was thinking today that there are there are places that you're so grateful they're there, but you don't ever want to have to be in need of them, like the like police, like the fire department. Uh, like the ACLU there's another one Uh, you're glad it's there but you don't ever want to find yourself in the position where you need them to defend you Um, and that is something that has happened to uh, the man we're about to meet Um, I'm sure he never thought he would be in need of the ACLU but turns out he was Turns out he still is, um, and he's got a story to tell, just as every client uh, of the ACLU does. Um, so I want you to meet Parteev Patel. Parteev, hi. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing today? I'm good. Good. <laughs> okay, we need to. Um, I thought rather than give a long introduction about uh, your story, I. I thought it might be better to uh, let you tell it uh, from from the beginning from the time you came to the United States
2: okay um, so um, so I am a dreamer I am a DACA recipient and I'm also the first DACA recipient to be admitted to the Pennsylvania and New Jersey bar Um, I came to the United States at the age of five um and you know I lived a normal life like every other child does. It's not when you start getting a little bit older. that's when you realize what your status is
1: um when did that what excuse me know, when did some- when did that happen? I mean so you you had you just felt you were like everybody else, all your other friends. When did this unwelcome news that you were not as American as you thought you were uh evidence itself uh
2: it evidenced like so for me, it evidenced slowly over time. So it evidenced, you know, when you start getting older and you start asking your parents for documents, like, oh, I need this for driver's license, or I need this for, you know, filling out college applications, this and that. Um, so when you put all of that together, uh, it kind of dawned upon me. And then obviously I had a difficult conversation with my parents. Um, but yeah, aside from that, when you're young, you just act like every other normal kid. Um, although my story was a little bit different when I was younger, um, for the most part, you know, I went to school. I was in the school plays. I, you know, acted like every other normal kid out there.
1: Where did you grow up?
2: Uh, so I grew up in New Jersey, specifically in South Jersey. So I lived a little bit in North Jersey and then grew up the re- remainder of my life uh, in South Jersey, just over the bridge from Philadelphia.
1: Okay. So, um, and, and also, your parents' uh, status, so they came here uh, and brought... You, their child, with them when you were five years old. What, what, what was their status?
2: Um, so I don't really like getting into specifics because, like many immigrants or many, actually Americans at this point, everyone lives in a mixed-status family. So I, I, I just kind of leave it at that. That you know I am a part of a mixed-status family, just as much as every other American is out there, um, and yes, that's pretty much where okay. I leave
1: it at. Okay. So you find out you're not uh, a citizen of the United States, but uh, you continue on with your your life, right? You go to college?
2: Yes, I went to college. I went to law school. um, And, you know, because of doubt, I was able to go to law school. uh, And I moved on. And then I knew that the issue of being admitted to the bar might be an issue. Um, but I kind of said, you know, I'll push through it, I'll get to it. But I remember specifically the last semester of law school when, you know, the stress of knowing I had to apply to the bar and that this would be an issue got too much. So I literally just walking. I left the library, left all my stuff there, and just started walking. And uh, I, I was in Philadelphia. I went to school at Directly University. And I walked about 15 or 20 blocks. And I found myself front of an outdoor pond with tears down my eyes, not knowing. Uh, what was going to come next, next or if my hard work was for nothing um and like you mentioned at the beginning uh you know sometimes you never think that the ACLU would be needed but for me at that point I realized that I needed the ACLU more than anything
1: So you graduated from Drexel uh you yes. you what rather immediately take the the bar exam for admission to the Pennsylvania yes. bar
2: Yeah so just a kind of Lay out what the bar process is. It's okay. just a two-step process. The first step is actually taking that exam and passing that exam. Uh, I took that exam that summer and I passed that exam. The second part of it is something called a character and fitness certification where the board has to look, take a look at your history and determine if you have a character and fitness uh, required of an attorney. Um, here, the, the character and fitness was a holdup, but it wasn't really to do with my character, but more uh, of the law because there is a federal statute saying that states can't grant professional licenses unless the state decides to opt out of that statute. So the discretion is laid at the state. And because I was the first one uh, in Pennsylvania to be barred, they really didn't know how to go about my case.
1: So they just sat on it or did they deny you uh, admission?
2: So here's the fun part. Um, So (laughs) I I took the bar in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Yeah. Um, Pennsylvania initially denied me and it let me go through the appeal process. New Jersey kind of sat on it and then somewhere down the line they're like, oh, we hear New... Just wait for them to come out. So Pennsylvania denied me. New Jersey kind of just waited for it to play out.
1: Okay, and When did you contact the ACLU? Uh,
2: so I after like shortly after that story about sitting in front of a pond. I contacted the ACLU, yeah. just hoping someone would take a case. Um, and I was lucky enough that both Pennsylvania ACLU and the New Jersey ACLU uh, both jumped on board, um, and they actually helped me uh, prepare my application to the bar. Um, once I submitted, we didn't hear anything back from the bar. So, so to kind of give you a timeline, I submitted my application March 2016. Um, I graduated law school May 2016, sat for the July 2016 bar, and had results back in October 2016. Um, we didn't hear anything until the day the results were supposed to come out. Uh, specifically, Pennsylvania came out first, so the way the process works is the day the results have come out, your name is on the list. You look online, your name is on the list. Uh, if your name's on the list, great, you passed. If it's not on the list, you didn't pass. I was special in the sense that they actually called me that morning and said, hey, great news. You passed the bar bad news were denying admission to the bar.
1: Wow. And the denial based purely on the fact that uh, of your immigration status.
2: Uh, Yes. So they uh, purely based on my immigration status and it wasn't even to do with my character. No. Um, The character and fitness committee specifically should, like they look at people's character to make sure there's nothing in their character that would make them ineligible. Here it was more of a matter of law.
1: Right, so the ACLU. What I mean, I, I I I've I've read stories about what's happened. I mean, law schools um, all over the uh, the country uh, wrote to the this board of governors on your behalf, right? I mean, you had a uh, lot of support. yeah. So it
2: was fan- yeah, it was fantastic what the ACLU was able to do. Um, we had. You know, letters from mostly all law schools in Philadelphia. We had letters from the dean of my law school, specifically because he knew me as a student. We had the Yale Ethics Bureau that knows the ins and outs of, you know, what it takes to be an ethical attorney, uh, submit a brief on my behalf. We had, um, the city of Philadelphia submit something, uh, uh, immigrants rights groups across the country submit briefs and argument for my admission. So the support that the ECLU drummed up, uh, was fantastic. Um, and then along the same lines, once I got admitted to New Jersey, we actually had the governor, the new governor, uh, Phil Murphy, and the new state attorney general come personally to swear me into the bar, uh, oh, wow. which was a cool experience because most attorneys don't get you know, admitted <laughs> by the governor
1: and the state attorney general. No, but most attorneys don't go through what you got through to get yourself in that position. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, agreed. so uh sounds like a happy ending you get admitted to the bar in both New, New Jersey and in Pennsylvania and but in in the in, while all this is playing out uh there's a mm-hmm. presidential election and yes yeah and the president who, uh, well yes. go, go ahead i mean all of a sudden uh The DACA, which um, had given you a reason to believe that the future looked probably pretty good, all of a sudden a new attorney general, a new president come in, and all of a sudden things are back to, what, a state of limbo.
2: Yeah, I remember specifically that election night, um, just because I knew what Donald Trump about dreamers i just had a bad bad, uh, feeling yeah um and it was a rough election night um but then i thought i had a false sense of hope that okay he might not touch daca because he kind of pushed the issue aside for a while and then september 5th happens uh where you know the the new attorney general comes out and says that daca has been rescinded and then gives congress six months so we're all like sitting on edge waiting for congress to act waiting for congress to do something um but obviously the president kind of pushed back on any reasonable bipartisan agreement that came through right. Um, and right now like my fate is still uncertain because luckily a court put an injunction so renewals are allowed to occur uh, but we don't know how long that will last currently I'm set to expire my DACA is set to expire uh, August 9th of this year so a little bit less than five months at this point uh-huh. uh, I'm obviously hoping that my renewal goes through but that's not a permanent solution. We need a permanent solution. Uh, So we need as many people to go vote this year as possible to make sure we get a permanent solution.
1: So it is um, conceivable that in five months, if the government doesn't act, the Congress doesn't act, um, that you could lose your protected status that you had under DACA, and what, ICE agents could show up and... Take you into custody and deport you? Is that a possibility in five months?
2: That is a strong possibility. Um, so, like, dreamers are losing status every day. Ever since March 5th, dreamers have just been losing status, I think, by 1,200 a day. Wow. Um, obviously, dreamers will try to get their renewals in, but some people can. There's issues with that as well because the processing delays take a really long time. But yeah, it's conceivable in five months that I can lose status and have ICE agents come knocking at my door. Uh, Because under President Obama, there were different enforcement priorities. The first they just focused on uh, criminals, and then they went to people that arrived recently, and then finally people that have been here for a while. Um, But under President Trump, anyone is up for games. So if an ICE agent knows where I live, which they do because they have my information, uh, they can theoretically come knock on my door.
1: And you would be deported to where? India?
2: Uh yeah, I would be deported to India.
1: A, a country you have no real memory of ever living in.
2: Yeah, not really. I no. came at the age of five. Yeah. Um, I can somewhat speak the language, but I can't read it. I can't write it. Um, so if I was to ever be sent back, I would not know how to kind of function because I'd be considered a illiterate person at that point.
1: So are you working as an attorney now I mean I'm wondering if an employer, given your you know status in limbo, would even hire you? Are you able to to work? I mean, you go through all this schooling, you you pass all the tests, and what where are you now in terms of employment as an attorney?
2: so so um, I, I, so I just became an attorney I guess about six weeks ago, so I was looking for a job I actually found a job as an attorney, Uh, the South Jersey firm was nice enough, Um, I was obviously open about my status and where it stood, Uh, nice enough to, you know, take that risk and hire me. But obviously, that's a risk on the employer as well, because they don't know, you know, early on in your legal career, employers invest a whole lot of time, money, and energy to hire you. Right. Um, So if you're not going to stick around, it might not be the smartest move. But, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that my renewal does go through. I'm hopeful that I get another two years out of this um, to be able to plan the next two years out a little bit more appropriately.
1: Um, I, I really, I mean, I, 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 I try to put myself in your shoes, and it's really tough. Um, be, I can't imagine. I mean, in every way, you, you feel as American as as any as I do, and yet you are living under with this. St- I mean, this threat of literally being taken away.
2: Yeah, it, it is. It is very um, disheartening because it was kind of a weird past year where, on one hand, I was getting excited that I was being admitted to the bar, but on the other hand, I was like, wait, like, am I even going to be around to be an attorney? Um, along with that, you know, I've obviously tried to like live my life and move along. So I've got married recently, and then. Because of the uncertainty, it's kind of hard to make basic decisions like, should I buy a car? Is that a smart idea? I don't know. Um, do, do I take out a mortgage because, you know, I want to build a home one day? Is that a smart idea? I don't really think so. Or, you know, my wife wants to have babies. Is that a smart idea? Because what happens in five months if she's pregnant and I'm sent back?
1: You know, I think a lot of Americans, when they think of dreamers, they think Hispanics. Don't don't you think? Yeah. And that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it, it is. And that's why I started to speak out a little bit more, uh, because this isn't just a Hispanic issue. It's an issue based on immigrants from across the world. Right. Um, so it's it's really not. And I'm trying to, you know, lend my voice to show that, hey, it's not just a Hispanic issue. You know, different communities have people within them that have this issue um, and that all the communities in America should get together Ensure that
1: Dreamers have safe passage. It's, uh, I mean, you you must feel at times like you're living in a nightmare. I feel like I'm living in a nightmare, and it's not <laughs> even, <laughs> It just doesn't feel like the America that I was taught, of, you know, about uh, the Statue of Liberty and and the ingathering of of people, and and here you are, this uh, you know, incredibly uh, educated, certainly more educated than I. Um, you've probably paid taxes while you've been here. You've worked. You're not taking jobs away from anybody. You're not a rapist and a murderer, as the president might uh, suggest. I mean, it's it's just in. It, it strikes me as insane what's happening. Yeah, it, it is
2: somewhat insane. But um, one thing I realized, you know. Or the past two years specifically, is that there are a lot of people out there that do support Dreamers and support immigrants overall. Um, you know, people walk up to me all the time and say, hey, you know, I support you. If you need anything, I'm here for you. Um, you have people, you know, like the organizations such as the ACLU, you know, kicking into gear to do whatever they can to protect Dreamers. Um, so even though the president and his administration might act one way or think one way, I have a feel or I, no, I know very well that the American population doesn't think, or American population as a whole doesn't think or feel the way the president does about dreamers and Americans.
1: Right. Well, I I wish you uh, all all the best, and I I will be seeing and hearing you tonight. You're coming into Pittsburgh, I know, uh, uh, as yes. as part of the Voices of Freedom uh, presentation at the uh, Pittsburgh ACLU annual meeting at the Kelly Strayhorn Theater, and I'll tell my audience more about that. But, uh, Partive, I'm looking forward to seeing you this evening, and uh, I put me on that list of people who will support you uh, if anything should uh, happen in the future.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much. See you this evening. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye-bye. Okay, that's Partive Patel. as American as you, just doesn't have a paper, five years old, brought here, and our current government is taking people like him, (laughs) arresting them, jailing them, and sending them back to countries they don't even, that in many respects are as foreign to them as they would be to you. Uh I wanted Parteeb to, to share his story because um, I want to invite you uh, to where Parteeb is. That's tonight at the Kelly Strayhorn in East Liberty uh, at 7 p.m. And uh, it is what the uh, Pittsburgh ACLU uh, does annually for their annual meeting. Uh, they turn it into a presentation of the work that is done by the ACLU by taking people, having people like Parteev on stage, talking to uh, the Vic Volchek, who is the uh, legal director of uh, Pennsylvania ACLU, um, and others that we have helped throughout, I sp- say we as a member, And speaking of membership, and we spoke a bit about Donald Trump, I want to share with you some numbers that are mind-blowing. When Donald Trump took office, the ACLU nationwide had 425,000 members. 425,000 members. The ACLU today, just a year and less than a year and a half into Donald Trump's administration now has close to 3 million members. Look at what Trump, I mean, greatest recruiter for ACLU in uh, the history of the universe. We went from 425,000 members to almost 3 million members, many of them you, And that number should keep on going up, going up, so that we have the force, the force of somebody like the NRA that is focused only on, as you know, the Second Amendment. Uh, We've got a call. Caller, hi.
3: Hey, Lynn. Hi. Lynn. Yes. Yes. Um, George from Mo. Hi, George. Hi. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. I... Okay, i just, I put you on speakerphone. Anyway, you're talking about just the subject that I was calling in about. Uh, <clears throat> I um, will be down at the Kelly Strayhorn Theater for the ACLU meeting tonight also. That's great. And uh, I know you've been active there in the past and everything, but... Uh, uh, a uh, friend of mine here in Moon Township, uh, an attorney who used to do work for the ACLU, is. Uh, uh, we've been attending non-air and, and various meetings and everything for a long time. But I let my membership lapse, so I've got to take my application and money tonight to catch up. Yes, you but, do. Um, <laughs> I hope to see you there tonight. Okay,
1: well I'll be there. Uh, I I will definitely be be there. Um, and I mean they've got some wonderful people uh, lined up. Uh, S- uh, sister Janice Vanderneck, uh, who is getting a special uh, recognition. She is the uh, the the nun. I think I'm not using that word correctly. She's a sister uh, who I had the uh, privilege of working with uh, on a documentary uh, about it. Ten years ago and that's where I met her but she has become the the force behind um, efforts to uh, protect uh, dreamers uh, Hispanic dreamers in this area and she is something else so she will she will be there she founded La Casa which is the organization that uh, and uh, she's just worked tirelessly Amazing woman, and, and uh, you know, obviously a, a woman of uh, great faith and uh, her life. Uh, everything she does is because of her Catholic religion, you know, informs everything she does. And uh, it's a wonder that we don't see uh, maybe more people understanding that what she's doing is exactly what Jesus would do.
3: Right. Um, oh, on, a, on another subject, because yeah. uh, I'm re- uh, recouping and resting after being involved in the Lamb campaign for <laughs> the for the last couple of months, but especially this last week yeah. at the polling place and then getting signatures for the new uh, the the primary in the new 17th district.
0: Correct. But yeah. I want
3: to make a remark not about the campaign particularly itself, but because of the reorganization and the folks behind it is just, excuse me, completely changed since I used to be involved in the committee. And that is, women have taken over, (laughs) middle-aged, older, younger, women are, and they are geared up, know what they're doing, experienced, they're digitized, they are so on it. I couldn't believe it. I was just swooped up in it, I, and they're not so much associated with Democratic committees, but they are kicking butt. Yep. And it is unbelievable yep. the uh, the digital uh, data sets that they're using to do this. <clears throat> so it's like women from Lebanon, Lebanon uh, women from the South Hills, from Sewickley, from Moon Township. From uh, West Hills Women's League. This is like, I called it the big female, you know, conspiracy, (laughs) jokingly. No, it's just wonderful. But they are, they have, they're moving and they're doing and they're getting things done. You know what, you um, know what, I'm going to
1: put that on Trump too. Um, So Trump has more than quadrupled the membership of the uh, ACLU nationwide. Uh, And he has single-handedly, this misogynist creep, has single-handedly aroused the sleeping bear that is the women of America.
3: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And some old style Democrats, I think, are going to be shocked to their shorts uh, (laughs) to uh, see this happen. And it's a model that worked in the Lamb campaign, and I'm sure it's going to work in others, as these new uh areas, these new districts uh open up and, and start to move. Yeah. Uh this is transformational, really. This is great.
1: Well wonderful. So there's lots of good stuff going on. And I hope you'll join George uh, George and me at uh
3: including you too. Well, Your thank you. video is looking better. Your son is great and the phone number is good. Looks like you straightened out everything in the last week here while I was gone.
1: <laughs> We're trying. We're just getting better and better and better. Good. You're Thank doing good. Thank you.
3: Good. I hope you're, 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 you're internalizing and not stressing and sticking to your uh, to your goal, as you said. I you am. Back.
1: I am. It's the all new me, and I'm I'm enjoying the show again. I'm leaving here feeling good, not yeah. not sick. <laughs> Everything's getting better. I swear to God. Um, Thank
3: for your um, for your guests.
1: Thank Your you. Guest
3: list.
1: Yes. What about my guest list? Do you want more?
3: I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for you to have some live people okay. on the show. All right, again. all
1: right, all right, all right, right. I've got I've got a guest actually in studio on Friday of this week. And ah, there excellent. will there will excellent. be more. There will be more. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you, Lynn. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Um just a quick note, since uh george brought up uh the connor lamb uh victory i my blood ran cold when I saw uh this in the local paper that the uh democratic congressional campaign committee has um this is the group that like what six weeks ago said something like Well, we don't. We're we're really focusing on races that we think we can win. This is a group that was not there with Connor Lamb from day one, Um, and now that he's like this victor, they're jumping on board. And it says here the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has named Connor Lamb to its front-line program, which is essentially the party incumbent protection program, meaning that he will get now extra help and strategizing from the National Democratic Party. And my blood ran cold because he did just fine and dandy without the idiot's in the National Party, or any of the party people helping him, okay? And I think he should continue with that. They want to give him some money, fine. But as far as understanding how to run a winning campaign, I think Connor Lamb needs to school them. They don't need help, he doesn't need help strategizing from these idiots in Washington, Okay, that's all I'm saying. God, Johnny, come lately. And they're trying to raise money. they were trying to once they saw that he was looking like he might win, I was getting emails every few seconds from uh, Tom Perez and from the from the Democratic Party from this and that saying, you know Connor Lamb, he's really looking good. Uh, please, it's your opportunity. Send us ten bucks today. Five will go to Connor. Five will come to us. And I thought, screw you. If I'm giving money, I'm giving it directly to Connor Lamb. I'm not giving it to you idiots. Now you might say that's stupid because we need a, a but I don't think it is. I cannot stand the Democratic Party. It's weak. It's ineffective. It's, uh, it's, I don't know. It doesn't have any kind of coherence to it. And uh, I also want to point out that uh, this Connor Lamb, in in part, the attempt to take him down, which was to call him a, you know. A Pelosi back, Pelosi, Pelosi. Now that they don't have Hillary, well, they still keep resurrecting her, but they really don't have Hillary, ah, you know, run for the hills, Hillary. Now they move to the next powerful woman that is representative of the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi, the only female Speaker of the House in our nation's history. Isn't it interesting who the women... That are used as the boogie men <laughs> to rouse the Republican base, um, isn't it interesting that they are women of power? It's not like they go after men. They don't you, you know, say, Steny Hoyer is coming for you. Uh, no, but Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, women to think that there is anything but misogyny at work here and fear of powerful women. I mean, what has Nancy Pelosi done that's so terrible, I ask you? <laughs> it was a smart tactic on uh, Connor Lamb's part to distance himself. He was running in a district in which distancing himself from Nancy Pelosi was a smart move, obviously. But there are growing voices now uh, all over saying that, uh, well, I guess I mean it shows what idiots people are. Well, I guess the way you win is to do exactly what Connor Lamb did. No, it's to understand what district you are running in and represent those people. That's right, not all districts look like Connor lamb's what current district, which <laughs> won't exist in a Blink of an eye. Um, I do think there is something to be said for the fact that it is the Democratic voters in primaries that could put the kibosh on taking back the House because those who vote in the primaries tend to be more left than uh, certainly the country. And they would not have voted for Connor Lamb in a primary, would not have. They would have voted for somebody much more left um, or liberal, and they would have backed a loser. And my fear, I mean, I, I was reading something today, that uh, William Buckley and Barney Frank, I mean, you can't find two more disparate political characters, uh, Barney Frank, the liberal congressman, and uh, and Buckley, the you know the voice and god of the conservative movement, but they both agreed on one thing: that the idea is to get your people into office and not to be purists, to be pragmatists. You know, that's where I'm at. I am going to look at every, if I'm voting in a primary, I'm not necessarily voting for the person that most deal, you know, represents my ideas. I'm going to look at a list and I'm voting for the person I perceive to be the winner. And more Democrats need to do that. It's the same problem. Both parties have the same problem. Their zealots turn out in the primaries and nominate people too far to either the right or the left, and they go down, they don't win, in a general election, in the election that counts. I hope Democratic voters are smart. I really, I'm gonna berate you on this issue uh, from now until the first primary. Pick winners. Don't have some friggin' ideological purity test. Pick winners. In as much as you can ascertain that they will be. I I came upon a quote by uh, Nancy Pelosi that I also wanted to share with you. This is the kind of quote that makes a lot of men and a lot of women very queasy. She said this on Friday. She is aware that there are people gunning for her. And she said this I'm a woman at the table, I am a master legislator, I am a shrewd politician. And I have a following in the country that, apart from a presidential candidate, nobody else can claim. I want to say that that is the kind of statement that a man saying wouldn't get a reaction. A woman saying this. Women don't talk like this. I am a master legislator. I am a shrewd politician. Women have learned you don't blow your... This is one of the reasons I hate her. She's, she's right on all the counts, but women, we women have been taught that's very unfeminine, very unfeminine. Man can say that, a woman can't. So, before you jump on the anti Pelosi bandwagon, no, I, my only problem with her is she represents the establishment Democrats that have uh, gotten us into this sorry state. I agree, she's a master pal. And as a leader of uh, a party that has people of disparate points of view, I mean, she is strong. But inasmuch as this is all about misogyny, I'm uh, I'm not in. Let's just say that. Uh, and speaking of that, leadership. There was a hardly surprising but somewhat depressing uh, study that was pointed out on the front page of the New York Times yesterday. Uh, It's about a number of uh, studies that have been done where you get a bunch of people together and you ask them to draw a leader. What does a leader look like? Give me a sense of what a leader is and it doesn't matter who is in the group both men and women draw men the very idea of a leader is a man is masculine it's been drilled into all of our heads and it doesn't even matter you can also run an experiment in which you have, uh, you tell people, okay, we've got someone on the phone. They're going to make a pitch to you um, about something, and you decide whether that person sounds like they've got, you know, the smarts, the leadership qualities that uh, that you would want. And in group after group, they had either a guy named Eric call in or a woman named Erica call in and you can fill in the rest of the story, right? Eric and Erica both presented themselves with in the exact same way, with the same script. And in every instance, Eric was seen as a leader and Erica <laughs> Now, that kind of ingrained prejudice is a bitch to change. Even women are infected by it. I remember the first time I was ever a television anchor woman, this was uh, in Madison, Wisconsin in the 70s. Um, I was there for maybe all of five months and a new general manager came in and he called the whole newsroom together and announced without having warned me beforehand that I was no longer going to be the anchor. And he flat out said to everybody there, people don't want getting news from a girl. Their voices are not authoritative they are not looked at as authority figures, and blah, blah, blah. So I was demoted. The good news was is I was married to a law school student who immediately um, went to work. <laughs> and um, let's just say I was reinstated about, I think it was about three weeks later the station back down. Um, That general manager, you know, was clueless uh, uh, about his misogyny and sexism. And now managers generally are more inclined to be more subtle, right? You won't get a manager, you know, saying something like that in front of a room full of witnesses. But it's still... It's still in the heads, in the hearts, in the blood, and the bone. And a negative response to the idea of female assertiveness actually has a name in psychology. It's called the backlash effect in psychology circles. It has been documented over and over and over again on studies on gender, and studies on leadership, the Backlash Effect is, is all about keeping uppity women like Nancy Pelosi in their place. So, you know, the Me Too thing is not just all about sexual uh, conduct. It is about how women are held back constantly. By these even unconscious ideas that we carry around. And I don't know how you change that except with time. I look to the youth, and I guess, you know, a whole bunch of generations, at least my generation, and probably the one behind it and the one behind that, are going to have to die off, and let's hope. You know, women will finally get acknowledged as equal just about the same time we all become cyborgs. That's the way that's going to play out. (laughs) And making women equal. Are are you aware of what the New York Times is doing? I love it. You know I'm an obituary aficionado. Um, They now acknowledge that the people they choose to do an obituary on and have throughout the history of the paper been overwhelmingly I mean just mind-blowingly overwhelmingly male and white and that people of extraordinary accomplishment who didn't fit that often never got a New York Times obituary. And so the New York Times is, um, and it was funny because today I, they had a number of obituaries. One was on a very young guy, God, he's 37, uh, Adrian Lamo, who says he was the hacker who turned in Chelsea Manning. Okay, among other things, he also hacked into the New York Times. Um, And they say he's dead, was found dead, uh, nobody knows why. Who the heck knows? But on the other page of, again, another male, there is an obituary for a woman named Ada Lovelace. And the picture of her is not a picture, it's not a photo, it's a portrait. And it's a portrait because when she lived Well, when she died, she died in 1852. So photography, I guess, was just kind of sort of starting. I don't know. So what the New York Times is doing is sticking obits in (laughs) that they missed the first time around by virtue of their bigotry the idea that women didn't count. And so I never knew about Ada Lovelace, but I read her obit, bit, and man, I'll share it with you in a minute, but first got to call her. Hello, caller.
0: Hi, Lynn, it's Laura calling. How are you?
1: I'm fine, Laura.
0: Hey, I was thinking about uh, men and women giving speeches, and it reminded me of a, a class that I took in college. It was a speech class and it was the same speech, one presented by a male student, another by a female student. And when they rated the two speeches, the male student received a higher rating, and that was the beginning of the sexism discussion. But I also remember when teaching, and our male principal would try to get the 700-some students quiet, he would simply raise his hand. He was an ex-wrestler in his younger days in high school, and immediately the students would become quiet. And I, I can remember my brother, who is short in stature, saying that he constantly had to prove himself capable of doing these managerial positions because of his height. And he said that taller men were usually given jobs before the shorter men in business positions. And true. I I thought, well, that's sexism on their side. But um, I think it's going to take a long time before this misogyny goes away. I'm hoping the younger generation will carry that banner, too.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know that we'll live to see it, but things are getting better. <laughs> They're getting better. Yes. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate it. Thanks, Lynn. Okay. Nice to talk with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, catching up on a few emails, uh, Barber says, one does not have to like everything about Bill Maher, I know. He made some very good points and criticism regarding the Democrats ducking their heads and going along, as in Connor Lamb distancing himself from Nancy Pelosi. He made the point that there is much to brag about regarding Nancy Pelosi. The stimulus... Yeah, I agree. I agree. But he's wrong in that for that district. Connor Lamb was the candidate. Look, he hardly ran away with it, right? It was down, at one point when they were tally, it was down to 70-some votes. Somebody who Bill Maher would have liked would not have won. What is the deal? The deal is we need to take the House. We need to win. He's wrong. And Democrats in other districts who think that the strategy that Connor Lamb used is perfect for their district, they're wrong too. You got to know your district. And if you run an out and out liberal in a legislative district that Trump won by 20 points, you're going to lose. I saw Mar. I, I saw him say that, and I thought, you don't know what you're talking about. So you're suggesting we should have backed somebody who wouldn't have won. Okay. That's the way I feel. Uh, Brooke says, Lynn, you read Nancy Pelosi's words a moment ago. I would be more of a fan of hers if she herself said those words in the same manner that you did. You read those words in a strong and forceful manner. Pelosi's biggest problem is that she speaks in a mousy and stumbling manner and often comes off confused. What? Really? She does not exude confidence. Well, uh, those words sure do. I cringe when she speaks. If we're lucky to win the house in the fall, man or woman, I want a more dynamic house speaker. I want a fresh face. Well, Brooke, I don't know yeah I mean the fact is is women's voices often are they're not as forceful by virtue of the fact that they're f- they are female voices. when I hear remarkable women who unfortunately have very high voices, that's a handicap. it is a true handicap because again, in our Heads, a woman speaking in a real high voice or what sounds like a girlish voice will not be looked at as a leader. And that's just the way we're wired. We're wired to hear a male voice. And that means authority, strength, leadership. And so a woman who speaks like me, a lower register, I might, you know, slip under the radar. But a woman who's speaking like this, and in a quiet way, it's really hard to be seen as a leader. Has nothing to do with the content of what she's saying. I don't know how you get around that stuff. I don't know. I just want to tell you, Ada Lovelace, in case you wondered, uh, first of all, was the daughter of Lord Byron, who I had the hots for in English literature because he was really good looking. Uh, you know, the poet, Lord Byron. Uh, anyway, uh, his daughter, Ada, who uh, he divorced her mother very early on, Um calling her, when he liked her, Lord Byron called her mother a poetical, no, 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 what is it? He he was blown away by how smart she was. Um, oh, a princess of parallelograms. Ada Lovelace's mother, this would be way, way back, was uh, smart as hell about math and science and and then when uh, lord byron decided he didn't like her anymore he called her a um mathematical medea <laughs> anyway ada took after her mom and somewhat her dad and she said that she found science poetical she is credited as being the first human to recognize the potential of artificial intelligence. This is an 1850, she's dead in 1852. But she saw how, I can't even imagine, how machines could be taught and configured to uh, take data. Numbers, information, pictures, symbols, and she envisioned the first computers. 1852, she was dead at the age of 36. Just want to tell you. And she's acknowledged for that. Um, Walter Isaacson. Uh, who's a biographer, well-known, wrote a book called The Innovators, and he said it was Ada Lovelace's insight that would become the core concept of the digital age and that you could argue that she was the first computer programmer and at a time when women were not supposed to even be educated But men of the time had to acknowledge, and here's a quote from one of them, a mathematician, she has thrown her magical spell around the most abstract of scientists and has grasped it with a force which few masculine intellects could have exerted over it. I remember a book I read in the 60s called Hidden from History. And it's about women. You could write the same book about people of color. Boy, what we don't know. And then there's what we do know. Did you guys read the story in the Sunday Post-Gazette about this guy who was falsely accused by a woman of essentially sexual assault, accused over and over, then accused of stalking, accused of you name it. This woman went after this guy. He ended up spending, I think it was six months in jail, He never did a thing. He never did a thing to this woman. And the story is is so dispiriting because it shows our police and our district attorney simply falling down on the job and letting somebody rot in prison because they didn't do their jobs. So when this woman accuses him of this and that, they, they just take her word, throw him in jail. They don't do any of the things that are available to them. Like look, uh, in every instance there was video. These things happen in a place where there'd be a video camera that show she's lying. They never access the video. This is the other side of the fact that now police are trying to listen to women. But, guys, fine. Listen to women, but then do your job of corroborating what they're saying. These cops never did. It's a a frightening story. And then his girl, the poor guy's girlfriend ends up getting arrested because this woman starts targeting her as well, saying she's making threatening calls. She's threatening her. And the, his girlfriend ends up in, in, in jail. She had never, ever been arrested in her life. She thought, I, what the hell is happening to me? And all because a woman targeted them and played the victim. And this guy's attorney said that he had to run around finding evidence that he said the police should have obtained the video surveillance tapes from nearly every scene, there, there, all those threatening notes that she showed the police that were written in different handwritings. Never did they fingerprint stuff. She said at one point there was a knife that he threatened her with. They didn't even fingerprint the knife. He never held that knife, right? So this guy, guy who lives downtown, he was living downtown at the time, they're filing charges, throwing people in jail who can't meet bail, something I talked about last week. They put his bail at a certain point. This guy's got no money. He ends up, of course, losing his job. I mean, and what recourse does he have? So his attorney says, so they file charges before they even do an investigation. They charge you, put you in jail, and then slowly, 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 they start doing an investigation. And one of the cops now says, You know, you're trying not to victimize the victim, and so our officers will always err on the side of caution with what a person is telling them, and that's what we are now telling people they've got to do. Believe the women. Believe the women. Well, in this case where the cops are involved, yeah, okay, fine initially, but you don't put the guy in jail and place a bail that high that he can't meet when you haven't done the first little thing to corroborate what this woman is saying. And the police commander said, wow, this exposes the way the system can be exploited. It made me think, says the commander. How do we not have something in here that shows that she had filed as a victim nine times in 18 months? How wasn't that a red flag? nobody should spend six months in jail for something they absolutely did not do. But they said the woman was sobbing and crying and hysterical. And the attorney again said, yeah, so she was very, very convincing. And so is Meryl Streep. Boy, the police... Have got to get their crap together. I don't know what to, uh, this is—the most unbelievable story. I so feel for these two people, and the woman who made the accusations, of course, is now in jail. Barbara says, I don't agree with you. I think my interpretation is that Connor Lamb could have pointed out that Republicans make Nancy Pelosi out to be something she's not. He could still cater to his constituency while not ducking his head and going along with the Republicans' criticisms that, w- that are without merit. Meeting Conor Lamb in person, it's hard to believe Saccone got the votes he got. Talk about the perfect young politician who comes off as being completely sincere. I agree with you. I met him too before he even decided to run. I told him to run. I said, run! <laughs> Please! You're out of central casting. Um, we'll see. But I disagree. And I, my greatest fear is Democrats uh, are going to put up candidates that are going to lose. We got a good record of doing it, don't we? We do. I don't know when we're going to learn. Mike says, I say if the House is taken over by Democrats, then all old people, Nancy included, should step aside and let the younger ones take the lead. Nancy and others have so much knowledge and institutional understanding that they should be teaching the new crop of talent what they know, not fighting them for power. I actually agree with you on that. Nancy Pelosi is 77. Steny Hoyer is 78. Uh, James Clyburn is 77. Those are the three powers in uh the Democratic House leadership, and they're you know they know what they're doing, they're good, but yeah, you gotta know when to step aside. Chuck writes, Lynn having a degree in computer science from Pitt, I know quite a bit about Ada Lovelace. She was mentioned in quite a few of the textbooks for her pioneering work on a mechanical computer. I actually wrote a paper on her during my freshman year. And in that same vein, when I worked at CMU, I was lucky enough to meet Grace Hopper, another pioneer of computer programming who created the first compiler. Women should receive an enormous amount of credit for their contributions to our digital society. They should! but they don't. Oh my god, look what time it is. Carlo, you're too quiet. By the way, guys, Carlo is, is has been wonderfully uh, step has stepped in because my producer uh, left for greener pastures and um we did hire somebody. And she will start on uh, Wednesday, I believe. But uh, poor Carlo will still be stuck here probably throughout the week because she has to be trained on the equipment. But she's um, worked at KQV for a long time, so she knows her way around an audio uh, board. But I wanted to credit Carlo, and especially since I forced him to sit for five minutes beyond his appointed time. I'm sorry. Okay, guys, I didn't get to half of what I wanted to talk about. But, them's the breaks. Always nice hearing from you. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.
0: Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host... And do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.